turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. The title of the message is Gospel Edification. This text is just, there's a portion of it that deals with something I'm going to kind of springboard off into. And you'll see as we go. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Now years ago we went through Philippians. It must have been 2003, maybe, something like that. We went verse by verse. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints, those are those that are believers, they're sanctified, they're set apart, consecrated, they're made holy by God. To all the saints in Jesus Christ who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my request for you with all joy. What for, Paul? Why are you saying that? He says it right here. For, for this, this is why he does this, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He that has begun a good work in you. We know it's God says he works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It says it later in the next chapter, by the way. And we know that this is through the spirit that indwells in us that work is done. The spirit testifies of Christ, and this is how that we are energized by the spirit to live by faith. But verse 5 is why I chose this text. The reason why Paul is very thankful and, and is making requests with joy for these people every time he thinks about them is because of this thing that he noticed about them that was evidently consistent. It was their fellowship in the gospel. From the first time that he knew these people until even now. So they were known for this, their fellowship in the gospel. And just want to say it's obvious that this should be our fellowship, the reason why we fellowship. Now, we know there's secondary benefits in fellowshipping. There are some social aspects, but a lot of churches, that's their primary thing, where the, the social thing is first, and doctrinal things are pushed aside. And when doctrinal issues are brought up, and there is maybe some discrepancy or controversy about a doctrine, they don't get to the root of the matter because they don't want to break up the social aspect. So they water it down and they say, well, the doctrine takes a back seat. And then they have all the programs, the entertainment and all that. And all of a sudden, the gospel, even if they had it in the first place, the gospel is not what they fellowship in. There's nothing wrong with before or after church talking about your favorite sports team or what you ate last night at a restaurant or something about your kids or grandkids. There's nothing wrong with that. The primary focus, though, should be fellowship in the gospel. And 
when I was unconverted, I'd been to churches that uh, it's the social thing. And even after I believed the truth, I visited several churches all over the place. And I've noticed that some, when the meeting is over, they're out the door. <laughs> you know, they're, they're wanting to eat their chicken or steak or ham or whatever. You just can't talk to them. And then others that maybe there must have been some silent agreement not to talk about doctrine because they're talking about everything else. And you never hear spiritual things brought up. But fellowship in the gospel is, is, should be our focus. And this is related to today's message of gospel edification. Now the word edify or edification, there's several different ways. If you do a word search, you would even have to look up edified edifies, edifying. I mean, those things, you'll have to do separate searches to find all those words. And I looked at most of them. But the word is related to and means a building or architecture or structure. And we know that the common definition is to build that up, a building up. Some of the modern versions where it comes to the word edify or edification, it just says building up. Now, you could get crazy with all kind of spiritualization of what that means and what that's related to. And I think most of us know what those things are. And we're going to touch on maybe a few of those as we go on down here and look at some other text. The edifying of the saints. And if you remember, we, we looked at four functions of the church not too long ago. We have them on the board for a long time. They're on our website, on our, on our ministry page. And there's like a paragraph for each one. But edification is one of them. Don't ask me what the other three are. Worship, edification, apologetics, and evangelism. The coffee's working this morning. But edification is in there. The building up of the church. And that's not talking about numbers. That's not talking about an actual structure we come into. It's talking about people. Their minds. In reference to Christ. So there are several ways that this can be done in scripture. And we're going to look at some, but uh, I'm asking you that when you read through the scripture, try to notice, well, the text that I chose, Philippians, where I started out at, fellowship in the gospel. It talks about some other things there that are going on with these people. That has to do with edification. That is not divorced from edification. I'm going to look at the next one here in uh, Hebrews. If you want to turn to Hebrews 10, be turning there as I talk some more about this issue. Again, this can be done several ways in the scripture, and it, you don't have to just see that word edification for that to be happening in the text that whoever's talking in the text. Now, one thing's obvious, and we've got to remember this. This is one of those things, if uh, you remember anything, remember this. It's obvious that we do this process of edification by faith. Everything that we do should be by faith. The scripture says that whatever is not of faith is sin. So we do things by faith because we live by faith. We've been given faith by God, and that's the way we operate spiritually all the time if we're going to operate. But it's obvious that we do this uh, by faith and working by love in humility through the Spirit of God. So it's in or by faith, in or by love, in humility, through the power of the Spirit of God. And we know it's through the means of the Word of God. 
Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Those things can't be separated either. There's probably some other things we can add in there too that would bolster that whole statement about this is how edification is done. But those things are important. And some of these specifics, love and humility and these things will be mentioned in some of these texts that we're going to be looking at. Now in Hebrews 10, I think we've looked at this text for a different reason not too long ago. But in verse 19, I think we were talking about assurance or something when we were looking at this. And um, not too long ago, we were talking about sanctification. We looked at uh, this section through here. Hebrews 10 and verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness. And I want us to notice as we go through here, sort of like action phrases. Boldness to, here's one of them, enter in the holiest by the blood of Christ. Now, the old covenant, remember, there was a certain section there that, not anybody, not just anybody could go in. The high priest would go in. And now in the new covenant, because of what Christ has done, our high priest has done, we can we can enter in there boldly without having to be, you know, from a certain tribe or have other qualifications. We're qualified. We are what we talked about last week. We're entitled now because of the blood of Christ to go straight to God by the blood of Christ. So enter in is some activity there by a new and living way which he has consecrated or set apart for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest that's Christ over the house of God now the house of God is the church it's not a building again it's people so therefore we don't have to worry about making our meeting room uh, anything special or holy right we don't talk about uh, oh no food in the sanctuary it's a holy place it's separated because we're somehow weirdly connecting it to some kind of an old covenant and, and you know the uh, the dishes that we serve the lord's supper they're they're buffed out to a high sheen and they're holy and it, that's that's superstition and let's not have little shrines in our house with candles and pictures and all that goofy stuff let's be transparent wherever we're at. Verse 22, the next action phrase, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's another action phrase. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. You know, and let me say this. We know when I'm talking about action words, these are fruits or works that are taking place. And we know these are done by the Spirit. And we know that everything that this is talking about in this context is just blossoming with the gospel. And when we're talking about these things, I've used the phrase self-protective in the past. I mean, this is like a starving person having food in front of them and say, do you want to eat? Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you put my favorite food in front of me and I haven't eaten in forever. What am I going to do? I'm going to eat because I'm, it's self-preserving. And here, these things that they're exhorting us to do are going to Christ, going in a gospel context. It's a no-brainer. This is our life that we're going for. It's not like you've got to really coax me to do this because who else has the words of eternal life, right? 
To whom else can we go? What other gospel can we believe? There's only one. We came out of a false one, most of us. Are we going to go back and lick up that vomit? Waller in that that mire hole? No. These things are for our own good, and we should really, if we're in a healthy spiritual state, we should be craving these things and not have to have our arm twisted to do them. So it's not like none of this stuff is meritorious at all. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Let's stand and not compromise about what we believe. We profess what we believe. We, we confess Christ and we confess the gospel. We profess this body of doctrine that is the means which by faith we can lay hold on Christ, the object of our faith. He's saying stand there and don't compromise. Don't go backwards. If you go backwards, it's not beneficial. It's detrimental. So you might say it goes without saying, but in the context, I think you'll see why all these things are laid out. Let's hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? Because he is faithful that promised. We're just saying, well, I'm standing on the promises, right? Verse 24, here's another phrase. And let us consider one another. The old phrase, be considerate. This is what it's talking about. Get your mind off yourself. Consider one another, talking about believers, to do what? To provoke unto love and to good works. Semicolon, next action phrase, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He's saying, do these things, and not only do these things, but do them more and more as you mature and as time goes on because the day of Christ is approaching, where he shall come back in flaming fire with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God and believe not his gospel. There is that day coming where he will shout, and all those things that don't matter will be removed and will be burned. And the only thing left is our profession of this Christ, our faith that's latching on to this Christ, who is our righteousness. That's the only thing that's going to stand. Everything else, this goofy car that I was worried about last week, is going to be destroyed worse than what a deer hit. Our bank accounts won't matter. No, that'll matter. The low will be brought high and the high will be brought low. Crooked will be made straight. And he's already done that by his death, by his accomplished death. And he is now sitting at the right hand of the throne praying for all his people so that they will look to him. Now, these Hebrews are a lot different than us because they were raised in the Old Covenant. There might be some similarities. I'll get to that in a second. But... They were of the Jewish tradition with all that history of the Old Covenant, the, the ceremonies and all that stuff. And they were entrenched in that lifestyle and that tradition and that culture. And their families were, you know, big, strong families, close, that all did the same thing with them. And it was expected that generation after generation would be connected to this. You see little similarities in like maybe Catholic churches, like 
you know, have a strong view of that. And then some others that are raised in churches, uh, I've been in churches where uh, even preachers, you know, the granddad was a preacher, the dad was the next preacher, the grandson was the next preacher, and especially those type families. You just don't leave those places. But here, these Hebrews were coming out of the Old Covenant, believing the gospel in the New Covenant, and these families were disowning them. And I would imagine, more than likely, whatever employment they were involved with, they were treating them, maybe, it's it's obvious, No, maybe nobody else can see it, but you think, oh, okay, I see how you're, I know why you're treating me this. I see it's a subtle form of persecution. So this was serious in this culture. And the warning was, try not to worry about that. I mean, that your family, the scripture says in other places, your family is secondary, considered and compared to the family of God and, and Christ. So Christ promised there would be persecution. Now, the next verse, I'm not going to really go into it, but it's misinterpreted. We've been over before. It says something like, uh, I don't have a pace it here. But if you sin willfully after you've received this truth concerning Christ, that he's the final sacrifice, right? That's what it's talking about. The willful sin that it's talking about is the sin of unbelief and going back into, a, into an administration of death, the covenant of working for your acceptance before God in the law and the ceremonies and all that. It says, don't go back into that. And that's the willful sin. And the exhortations before that that we just read are to give you strength to not go back. Because therefore there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Why? Christ is the only and final sacrifice. If he's not it, going back there is not going to do it. And it was already said in this book, the blood of, of bulls and goats and heifers and all that, it never took away sin. Never. We know nobody could keep the law because it was a curse. It was the administration of death. So the importance of not forsaking the assembly, in other words, the importance of meeting together as a church body is to edify. That's part of to build ourselves up in the faith. So if you forsake the assembly and you don't have the thoughts maybe exhorted and encouraged, it says, but exhorting one another, right? Provoking one another to do this and that. If you, if you don't have that activity going on, person could drift away even if they're converted they could drift away and they could get cold spiritually and maybe they could get involved in things they shouldn't be getting involved in and then here comes the chastisement if God is going to bring someone back he gets their attention through certain things but if a person is uh, and here's the here's the sticky part you know somebody that might know our doctrine and maybe question what people's motives are for being at church or missing church. And I'm not talking about people being sick or having to travel or work, whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people just skipping out because I don't feel like being around anybody or I got some, I got something going on in my life. You know, but who doesn't have stuff going on in their life? If you would consider one another, you'll find out you're not the only one has got something going on in your life. And if you've got something going on in your life, this is the place to be anyway, right? But then, then it gets like people start overanalyzing this. And well, if I if I come back to church, I'm afraid I'm coming back to church for some kind of a wrong motive, self righteousness. I don't need to come back to church to show everybody that's at church that I'm spiritual. And what's weird about it? And I know this because when people are out, they don't know who's here in the first place. Because other people are out, and they might be thinking, "Oh, I know so and so is there." He's probably thinking, "Why is that?" No, so-and-so wasn't here either. <laughs> you see what I mean? 
So people assume a lot of things and they, they get all crooked in their motives and their incentives and all that. Bottom line is, if you are not fed, and not even just here, at home, in a car, there's, there's, you have a CD player or a tape player in a car. You got an MP3 player or something you can hook up. You have got material at work on your break that you can read. You have got books in your library. There's of all kind here. If you need some, they're here. Do you want me to recommend some? I can. There are means. There's sermon audio, not just me. There's decent preachers on sermon audio. There's means that you can lay hold of. I exhort you to do that outside of here. But if you don't make use of any of those means, if your Bible app on your phone or on your tablet doesn't have a fingerprint on it, you haven't used it in a long time, or your Bible, physical Bible has dust on it, there's going to be a result from neglecting the Word of God because we forget, forget the knowledge that we have. There is a retrogression sometimes in our knowledge because if think about it in exercise, which is something I haven't done in a long time, but I'm talking a lot about it. I'm going to, maybe, if somebody could remind me and encourage me. <laughs> but if you don't exercise for a long time, what happens? Your body parts start to move around in a direction you don't want them to move. You know, your belly gets bigger. You start slouching. You actually develop a shortness of breath. Your heart rate, resting heart rate, goes up all day, every day, and stays up. But if you exercise, you reduce your resting heart rate. You have more energy. You just feel more alive. So when you neglect that exercise, that movement, and you know if you are sitting too long and you get up, your joints creak and stuff. stuff's not moving around. Spiritually, same thing. You will retrogress. And here's what I, here's what I was kind of getting at in more detail about the stickiness. The issue of somebody just retrogressing a little bit that's a believer versus somebody that's retrogressing in at least intellectual knowledge and not attending that might be an apostate. We don't know who those people are. And because somebody is out maybe for months, we don't say, well, he's apostate. We don't, we don't, we shouldn't do that. Right. But people are tricky in their own minds. Like, I'm not going to come to church to prove that I'm not an apostate. Or some people, when they doubt their salvation, what are they doing? It, when they start doubting your salvation, it gets really, really tricky in your mind because you yourself wonder. We've had people here that have boldly said, I am an atheist. I'm gone. Right? We know, we know a couple of those people. Or somebody that was here that got a hold of a theological toy and flirted with it, and then they went to a Catholic church. Now they're hardcore Catholic. We know people like that. And then people, if they're here as members, and, they, and they're not progressing and learning, if they start doubting because they're not getting a healthy dose of the gospel, maybe they themselves in their own mind would wonder, I'm on this downslide of doubting because I'm not eating that gospel diet. Am I one of those that left? Will I be that way? So the next step to answering that question, only God can give that answer to that person. I can't. That person may well be an apostate, a non-elect. And what if he did come back and then he got into the just the intellectual doctrine, come to find out he, on that last day, was not a child of God? Why are verses in the scripture 
there that say, check yourself out, check your calling, make sure you're of the faith. We have to challenge ourselves all the time. With what? What do we do that with? The gospel, not the law. <laughs> See, that's the point. I just reminded us how we check ourselves. The gospel of Christ. Right? But if somebody is out of church, out of fellowship, don't use the means even outside the church, and they start doubting, if they're not exercising the gospel, they're going to start judging themselves by the law. I have seen it over and over again. And then they start having that anxiety because they're they are feeling guilty, and it just compounds. But if you're in the exercise of the gospel and you're in gospel training all the time, and your doubts are far and few between, when something comes up, your assurance, like it says here, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And it said in the other verse, not wavering, right? So in other words, it comes down to, do you really believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is all of your salvation? And he has satisfied the Father completely. And there is no guilt and wrath and condemnation on it. Do you really believe that? Or are you going to just kind of like keep tumbling down the hill and say, uh, maybe it's, and you start looking inside. If you're coming here, if I hear you're looking inside, I'm going to say, I'm going to take you off to the side. If not, hear from the pulpit and say, don't look inside. Anybody ever hear me saying, don't look inside? Right. You look to Christ as your full and final and finished salvation. If you don't hear that all the time, you'll forget because we're human beings. And we live in a humanistic, man-centered, self-centered, looking-inside world. Went a little bit longer on that than I wanted to. I don't know if I'm going to get done with all this. I doubt it. So some other things. I said fellowship in the gospel. That's the first thing. So to fellowship in the gospel, you need to make yourself accessible to everybody, uh, whether it be here once a week or, you know, some people are open to meeting with each other. I don't have to be anywhere with any of you to for you guys separately to meet with one another. I know some preachers are really protective about that. They're afraid they're going to like start studying the Bible apart from the pastor. And like, I dare you to study the Bible with each other <laughs> and, and fellowship in the gospel outside of here. I dare you. Have at it. Uh, in other words, I'm encouraging you to. There is not just fellowship in the gospel. As you fellowship in the gospel, there is, and there's a couple messages on Sermon Audio about this, Gospel forgiveness, right? That is that we forgive others because Christ has forgiven us. When somebody does something to us, there are situations where we misunderstand things and misinterpret things. And that might be half the time the way people do. They falsely assume a person meant something because they're not used to considering one another, like a text says. But sometimes there actually is a, um, an offense, and it's the other person's fault. Has anybody ever here done that to anybody else? I'm sure that you haven't. <laughs> but when that's done to us, we don't all of a sudden say, you know what? That person, I'm pretty sure did that on purpose. And I'm going to switch from judging by the gospel over to my old way of judging by the law. Not only that, not only that I'm going to get them back. Right? That, that vindictive attitude is in our nature because we're number one. Right? That's why we want to just 
run people off the road when they've cut in front of us or something or um, the road rage type situation is, is a good example. But things happen and we need to be exercising the gospel to not just everything but this, but this too. Gospel forgiveness. We forgive others because Christ has forgiven us for more than likely worse things that they've done to us. Gospel evangelizing. Of course, when I say gospel evangelizing, I don't want that to sound redundant. We evangelize with the gospel. But what I'm talking about is all the proper gospel principles, not this false evangelism that we see. But evangelism, the proper gospel methods. And I could, I could list all kinds of other things here, but I just kind of put some little headings here. Gospel motive for obedience. Now we know uh, even this message is kind of connected to talking about edification. And, and you don't come here just to be edified by me standing here. The encouragement in some of these texts that are coming up is that you guys edify one another. And, and I'm hoping that you would edify me. And that's part of the, the idea of you guys getting under the hood, so to speak, and get your hands dirty when it comes to participation, in other words, edifying one another. So that is part of the obedience to all these exhortations in the scripture. So as we edify, our motive ought not be skewed like, okay, I'm going to be like the best dude that motivates so I can have the edification badge. And so that when people think of me, they think, man, it's Scott, he's the... He edifies me so much, more than any uh, person on earth or any pastor in the, that I've ever had. Whoever that's talked about in that way, they kind of, yeah, you know what I mean? Like Barney, you remember Barney Fife used to. <laughs> but our motive is we ought to edify one another because we love one another. And we know how that people have edified us in the past through the means of the gospel, and it's, it's helpful. Sometimes at times where we were at our lowest, where we need to be built up and somebody has come along and just said something so small, that person that said it probably wasn't thinking much about it, right? And it doesn't have to be giant. So motive for gospel obedience, by faith, in love, in humility just as we talked about specifically this edification. So just like all these other things are gospel-oriented, this edification also is gospel-oriented and centered. We know that it must only be on the foundation of Christ, right? No other foundation has been laid that's been laid, and that's on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said that, I think, in Timothy. If not, really all else is in vain. It's just an exercise of religion. It's just like any other denomination out there or any quote-unquote church that we see going on, any kind of activity. It's just an exercise in futility. It's, it's, it's in vain, sinking sand, right? It will crumble, which is the opposite of building up. And we know that doctrine and theology that supports the gospel of free and sovereign grace, it must be known, understood, loved, and defended in this realm of edification because that's part of the foundation. You can't take a foundation and say, okay, uh, like a house of cards, you're going to say, okay, let's take doctrine out. I mean, that's just the one. Take the one out, the whole thing goes down. 
That's, doctors just means teaching about Christ. Let's take, um, I mean, there's several things you could replace Christ with. Morals, you know, just a moralism message, a social justice message, any kind of other message. If you replace that with Christ, it comes crumbling down. Let's take out theology. What is theology? It's the teaching of God, who God is. Well, I mean, are we going to worship the unknown God that we don't know anything about? That has no doctrine or theology? Take that little card out or that toothpick out or whatever you're building there. It's going to fall. That's not edification. That is a tearing down. There's also, uh, I think, one of the prophets, it talks about a plucking up or a plucking out, of taking bad things out. And we know we do that here. We, we expose the wrong, believe the truth, and we expose the error at the same time. So we don't want to, I mean, would you build a building with like 90% of the materials, if, if it's going to be for your life, permanently live in it, you're not going to put junk materials, you know, you're going to put boards up there that you see that have uh, termite holes in them and stuff. Why would you do that? So in our doctrine and theology, we don't want to just like say, Eh, it's okay if it's a primary issue. Eh, it's okay if we hold to that. Just slap that in there. You know, I don't get this person mad. You you can hold on to that idol that you have that has to do with replacing what Christ did in salvation. I don't want to cause an uproar in the church. We just let that slide, right? We get some more people in here if we keep everybody happy, right? We can't do that. That is not a building up. Love tells the truth. Love points to Christ every time. And I don't care if it's uh, somebody that maybe you think special highly more in the church of over anybody else. And if they say something that is doctrinally wrong connected to the gospel, do not pat them on the back and promote them in religion. If you claim you love them, that's like a person being in a house that's on fire. You just wave as they're in the window. It'll be okay. And then knowing that house is going to burn down. That's not love. And again, not just the preacher or those that teach in the church are to edify, but the whole body of Christ must grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to be effective in this thing of edifying and to participate in mutual edification really for a healthy church. I've seen churches set up really bad where it's a one-man show and they just keep members coming in and it's uh, this preacher, they're, they're coming because of the preacher. I've seen it in other churches. And there's no dialogue. It's always a monologue. Sometimes these preachers refuse to be questioned. And there's no encouragement for people to get together and express their gifts. Everybody has a gift, might not even know what it is yet. But that's the idea of serving in the body. You will eventually, and somebody might recognize your gift before you. You might not ever recognize your gift. And somebody, three or four or five, six other people in church might have always known it. But we can't stifle people's spiritual gifts. We can't really have somebody under the thumb of a pope in a church like ours. There's not just the one pope in the Vatican. I've seen all kind of popes in churches, and it's ugly. There's all kinds of reasons. And one of them shouldn't be fear. I shouldn't be afraid somebody in the congregation is going to be smarter than me. 
there's people in the congregation that are smarter than me about certain things. And what do I do with those people? Hey, I want to talk to you about that thing you're smarter than me at. I shouldn't be intimidated by that. All right, let's go to, I'm only going to get to one text in this section of edification. Let's go to Romans 14. And the context of Romans 14 is talking about Christian liberty. There were at least, if I remember correctly, three things brought up in this chapter. It had to do with one of them was meat versus herbs or vegetables. And the thing about meat in Scripture could at least mean two things, an, an argument about meat. Um, it could be the Old Covenant reference to you can't eat pork and certain dietary restrictions that maybe these are unclean things, uh, pork and shellfish and things like this. That is one aspect of uh, a debate about meat. The other would be uh, meat that had been in this city that these were written about, meat that had been offered to idols. Good meat, after the sacrifice, they take it to uh, a store, maybe kind of like Big Lots or Ollie's. I like going to to get deals. And uh, it was cheaper. And there was nothing wrong with it. Some people had that weird idea that all oh, that meat's off of the idols. It's got like evil in it or something. I better not buy that meat. And I better not see you buying that meat either. So this is about the, the liberty, whether to do or not do that. And if you decide either way how you do that in reference to your brother or sister in Christ that maybe has a conscience that says that doesn't have the knowledge. It's the weaker brother or sister that doesn't have the knowledge that you do about that meat's okay. Right? So that's what that's talking about. Well, the other thing in Romans 14 is not just meat. It's certain days. Respecting certain days, whether they be a special day over a regular day. And the other thing was wine versus no wine. Whether or not you can drink wine versus uh, not drinking wine. But here, it seems like they concentrate on meat more throughout this chapter. And they use that as an example. In Corinthians, they talk about that also. Verse 17 for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, remember a second ago, we were talking in Hebrews, kind of alluded to, I think it's chapter 12, comparing the two covenants that said in the old days in Mount Sinai, God would speak to them and it would shake the earth. Then these people were scared. It said if, a, if an animal went on the holy mountain, it would be thrust through with the dark. Well, I mean, it's all kind of like smoke and booming voice and just fear under the administration of death. And then it compared the new covenant said, now you have the clarity of the gospel. The accountability level now is even higher because there are explicit statements about this is the only and final sacrifice. And if you leave this, you think the old covenant was bad with the, the it's nothing compared to Christ coming back in, his, in flaming fire with his angels, because this time he is not going to just speak He's going to shout and things will be removed and burned. And the only thing left are these things, not meat and drink. That's not going to be left. That's going to be removed. But righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, that's what's going to remain. That can be taken away by fire. That's going to be protection if you have his righteousness. Right. So Paul's this is a teaching moment for Paul. It's like to the weaker brethren. <laughs> 
What are you concentrating on meat for? Meat and drink. You're out of focus here. That's taken care of. We have a righteousness that gives us peace and joy in the Holy Ghost because of Christ. Verse 18, for he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify or build up another. Just to kind of give you this shortcut interpretation of what he was teaching here in this text and other verses I didn't read is those that did have a problem with this meat. Let's use me as an example. I know it's okay to eat pork and shrimp and lobster and other things like that. And in the old covenant, they couldn't eat. But if let's say we had a person that was into Judaism months earlier and then they joined our church and they said, or maybe a Muslim that they're against pork and maybe, um, we had dinner. Now, if I'm a mature believer and I know that they're sensitive to that, first of all, I might let them order first, see what they're going to get <laughs> so I can get pork or shrimp. But until I can teach them and they can be confident that that meat's okay, I need to humble myself in love and not offend their conscience and say, I'm going to get you know, beef, or chicken or fish instead of pork or shrimp or lobster. Consider the other. Because in another text down here, it's going to talk about how that Christ, he didn't consider himself, right? He took upon himself a form of a servant and he humbled himself. And he did things for people that did not deserve them. So he is our example. And as hard as that is, we shouldn't say, you know, that person's stupid. Isn't that pretty easy to see? I mean, here's one verse right here. It says you don't have to worry about this meat anymore. You know, don't don't be impatient with people. Take another couple minutes at least to explain the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. I'll just read that verse either explain what that means. Because Paul here is not saying we enable weak believers and we keep weak brother and sisters weak. He's not saying that because he wrote a lot of his letters to undo that stuff in people's minds. So we need to be considerate. And just like gospel forgiveness, remember us when we believe the gospel. I mean, I've been believing the gospel for 30 years now. The first few months, I had to have some stuff undone out of my brain that I was holding to that I needed to drop off. Weird eschatology views, you know, weird church views and deeper things in grace, deeper things that were not lined up right. And it takes time. And we should be patient with people. And now if we think we know all what we know, all the more reason to get with these people in love and patience and give them a shortcut. Tell them, hey, here's the goofy things I believed. And uh, some of these things I didn't have anybody to help me figure them out. I had to study and study and stumble and get things wrong. But now I know this stuff. I can help you out even faster. Right? Take that attitude rather than just like, what in the world? Did you hear what so-and-so said? Don't do that. Edification, building up, building up. And going back to the, the workout scenario again, and I might bring some of this up next week. And scripture talks about being strong, right? So translate that into uh, working out. Are you going to, especially a guy, 
you put some weight on the bar and you're helping a guy work out, you're going to put a five over here and a five over here. You want a little bit of resistance, right? Because you know when you give resistance the next time, they're able to add more weight, right? So the idea of, and I just mentioned something about a shortcut method of learning. Well, in working out, it's not only resistance, it's high intensity. If a person wants to be strong, high intensity or stay at the house for guys that want to get strength. So we should know better not to just go wimpy around and water things down. We give the truth in love. And we shouldn't look at doctrines. Here's the thing. People are used to hearing this myth that concerning the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of grace, they say, is strong meat. Now, usually I say, seriously, are you kidding me? Because they're all over the scripture, even in the Old Testament. They're all over the place. They're not strong meat. They're just not mentioned in these false churches that these people grew up in. And they're hated. So something that's hated, people want to shy away from. So that's that's for those doctrines of grace. That, those are for like, isn't that for like people that are in a full-time ministry that's gone to college? Don't they teach that in college classes? So some churches that give lip service to sovereign grace, maybe once a year, maybe on a Sunday morning when everybody's not there, when all the faithful people Sunday morning or Wednesday night, they'll bring that out once a year, kind of rehearse. We're just going to kind of go over the doctrines of grace. We're going to dust them off. And we're going to talk about them. I don't know if you remember what they are, you know, because these are things you keep in the theological closet, only bring them out when certain people are there. When you're evangelizing after Sunday school's over with, you've got all these people that you're going to bring down the aisle. You don't want to talk about the doctrines of grace, right? I've seen that in churches. Doctrines of grace are basic. It is what the gospel, especially the atonement, the, the atonement, the effectual atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ is basic and center to the gospel. The fact that his atonement, his death, is sufficient in and of itself, and it, it is what does the saving. When I just said that in 30 seconds, that's not hard to understand. People just don't like it. Just this week on social media, I saw a guy said, it, it took me 10 years to get limited atonement understood. I don't understand that. I mean, I can intellectually cause somebody to be able to grasp limited atonement. I can intellectually get them to grasp it. They might not believe it and love it, in a gospel sense, but if somebody can't teach somebody what I just said in 30 seconds, at least in an intellectual way, and ask them, did you understand the English words that I said? And it doesn't mean this over here. And they would say yes. They might not like it. They might not embrace it as the only truth of the gospel, because that's what has to happen. Ten years to understand that Christ's death is actually what saves. Well, they had a pastor that liked talking about probably everything else but that. That's why it took 10 years. And whoever, I can't even remember who told me that. They still might not understand it. But we come at these things as <laughs> simply spoken so that they can be simply embraced by faith. And we use the scripture. We don't use philosophy. We just keep pointing to get the, get the, the, the mysticism and all the misconceptions about this is only for 
people with PhDs. If you don't get this about the death of Christ being what actually saves the efficient, effectual death of Christ, then you don't know God, period. It's the essence of the gospel. It's Christ alone. It's grace alone. All right, any questions or comments?